Welcome to the Refuge Recovery Podcast. Refuge Recovery is a worldwide community of people who are using the practices of mindfulness, compassion, forgiveness, and generosity to heal the pain and suffering that addiction has caused in our lives and the lives of our loved ones. This podcast is for all those interested in and all those already practicing refuge recovery to find freedom from addiction of all kinds. To support this podcast and your refuge recovery, please donate using the link in the show notes. So welcome, everybody. Um, This is the ongoing Thursday night sort of lecture and discussion about the Refuge Recovery Program, the core um, teachings of the program, where I share some of what's in the book uh, and then make some commentary. And and then we have an opportunity for some participation, some Q&A. We are coming to the end of the Eightfold Path. We're on the final uh, chapter of the Eightfold Path, the eighth factor, uh, that of concentration and the importance and the dangers uh, of concentration practice. Um, Maybe some of you have been coming the whole time and you've gotten all uh, the first 11 or 12. I think this is probably our 12th session. But as a little bit of a reminder and review, Refuge Recovery consists of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths. The first truth is that uh, we all experience suffering and as addicts, as recovering addicts, uh, there's a a special uh, extra layer of suffering that we experience, that we've created, um, that our addictions have created and that we've uh, experienced. The first truth of Refuge Recovery asks us to do a in-depth inventory. If you haven't done that yet, please do. It's in the book, it's on the website, refugerecovery.org has a um, worksheet, I believe that you can download in order to answer the question. So first truth um, that um, addiction creates suffering in our lives is suffering. The um, second truth that there is a um, cause, second noble truth, or the, the cause of suffering is repetitive craving. And again, every living being experiences this craving for pleasure, this craving to avoid pain. And um, we as addicts have a, uh, maybe a more extreme tendency to uh, try to avoid pain and create pleasure to the point of uh, many consequences in our lives, extra layers of suffering through our attempts to avoid or sustain uh, pleasure, pleasure and pain. Uh, The second truth inventory also has an an, an detailed um, inventory that we do as part of our recovery, where we investigate all of the um, underlying conditions and experiences in our lives that perhaps Uh, influenced our um, experience of becoming an addict, crossing that line from normal drug and alcohol abuse into addictive (laughs) drug, alcohol, sex, food, 
uh, process addictions, whatever it was that, that manifested as, as our addictions. The third truth is that um, it is possible to recover. This is the Buddha's teaching that all living beings have the power and ability to awaken, to be free from suffering, to um, practice non-attachment and compassion and, and wake up and see the causes of suffering and bring the antidotes to the causes of suffering, find freedom in this lifetime. This is, um, this is the promise of, of the Dharma. The fourth truth is the path to recovery, to awakening, to, to healing that we are applying in refuge recovery. And that is the eightfold path. So I'm gonna uh, read the chapter on the eighth factor, which we're at tonight. But before I'll back up to chapter four uh, and read this first section, this starts on page 23. The path to recovery. Welcome to the rest of your life. You are entering a way of life that may be familiar to some, but will be foreign to others. The Refuge Recovery Program is a systematic approach to training our minds to see clearly and respond wisely to life. This is a path that will need to be walked one foot in front of the other, one breath at a time. In the beginning, some of it may seem confusing or counterintuitive, and some of it is, but you will find that with time, familiarity, and experience, it will all make perfect sense and will gradually become a more and more natural way of being. The fourth noble truth sets out the way, the eightfold path. This leads, that leads to the end of suffering and is composed of eight factors. The Eightfold Path can be further simplified into three sections. The first section is wisdom, which means wise understanding of reality and wise intentions with our life's energy. The second section is ethics, which includes communication, community, actions, renunciation, and livelihood service. The third section is meditation. This consists of effort, mindfulness, and tonight's topic, concentration. Each factor of this path is a practice. You will be taking on these eight areas of practice. This is often taught with the analogy of an eight-spoked wheel. You could think of these eight areas of practice as the spokes on your wheel of recovery. Addiction causes a deep imbalance in the wheel of life. The suffering we experience could be seen as the wobbles and thuds of a wheel with missing spokes, or at least those not properly connected or out of balance. A full recovery will take place when all eight spokes are strong and balanced or true. This will take some time, but it begins as we commit to renunciation take refuge and begin the practice of meditation. Again, it is important to understand that these factors are not a linear progression of one through eight. For most, it will actually be the sixth, seventh, and eighth factors of effort, mindfulness, and concentration 
that will be the key to coming into an authentic wisdom and integration of the other factors. As we apply our energy and effort to concentrating, the, to concentrating the mind and being mindful, we begin to see more and more clearly. Mindfulness will lead us to direct understanding. Understanding will lead us to wise intentions and actions. Mindfulness will also help lead us to appropriate communication and livelihood. Eventually, through wise actions and meditations of mindfulness, kindness, compassion, concentration, and forgiveness, we will come to know, we will come to directly know that our wheel of life is coming into more balance. With balance will come freedom from craving the substances or behaviors of our addictions. The Eightfold Path leads to safety, to a refuge from addiction. So I'm going to pause there and then jump back to the chapter 11, Concentration, which starts on page 85. So let me um, talk a little bit of shit about concentration before I jump into what we say here. Um, there are two forms of meditation. There's a lot of different forms of meditation, of course, but in a, from a Buddhist perspective, for the most part, we would categorize pretty much every single meditation as either a concentration-based practice or a mindfulness-based practice. I spoke about this last time in our last session when we went over the four foundations of mindfulness, but I wanna revisit it. Mindfulness is open and inclusive and portable and something that we can and should do in every activity of our life. It is inclusive. We have a formal mindfulness meditation practice that we develop in sitting and walking, standing and laying down. But then we bring mindfulness to eating. We bring mindfulness to uh, walk to uh, all of our activities, whatever, whatever we're doing, going to the bathroom, showering, driving, mindfulness is appropriate. And mindfulness includes all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, all of our uh, sensations. The whole human experience can be met with mindfulness, which is present time, non-judgmental awareness. Concentration has an object and technically concentration has a single object. We focus our attention on one thing, therefore ignoring everything else very important skill to be able to concentrate our attention. But this is something that the Buddha over and over warned people about getting attached to. That if we do too much concentration or if our meditation is always concentration based, what we're developing is a skill of ignoring rather than turning towards, rather than feeling, rather than really having intelligence about our own minds and our own emotions and uh, we can be developing a avoidance technique. Now, as addicts, we need to learn to avoid some things, right? Like, and especially in early recovery, you want to um, be able to ignore your mind when it's telling you to drink or use or eat or masturbate or spend or cling <laughs> on one level or another, whatever the addiction is. Like sometimes 
being able to ignore is a very important skill. But if we spend our whole life, our whole meditation practice, our whole always ignoring what your mind is saying or what emotion is arising, then uh, we don't actually get to the root of the healing, of the awakening, of the freedom that we're seeking. The recovery will uh, makes, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, mindfulness necessary. The Buddha had practiced deep concentration, and that's what was traditionally is taught in Indian Hindu teachings, concentrate mantra practices, uh, yogic practices, almost all of it is concentration based. There was no inclusive mindfulness. And, and this is what the Buddha rejected. He said, you know, I, I know how to concentrate. Concentration leads to bliss, leads to relaxation, leads to all of these avoidance of what's causing you suffering. But what concentration doesn't do is develop compassion, develop non-attachment, let us see the nature of our minds clearly and have a transformative relationship to it. Mostly it allows us to avoid and then you know, experience some of the phenomena, pleasant phenomena sometimes of avoidance. Even our first meditation instruction, which is pay attention to your breath and ignore your mind, constant, uh, um, is actually a concentration practice. And I know for myself and probably most of you, it's where we get the first relief, learning to concentrate on the breath and ignore the judging, craving, addict mind. <laughs> so there's something very useful about concentration, but we can't stop there. And I know most of you, if you didn't catch last night's, it's on the YouTube channel, you can go back and uh, listen to last our last session, the importance of mindfulness. We can't talk about enough. And this is really what sense, what really what sets a Buddhist approach to recovery, a Buddhist approach to life apart from just about any other approach. And anything that has a sort of mindfulness-based approach is borrowed from Buddhism. The Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, created mindfulness, discovered mindfulness. There's no precedent for any other source of mindfulness-based teachings other than the Buddha. Uh, of course, in our culture, Buddhism has been secularized. Mindfulness has been borrowed by medicine and science and, uh, and, and in my opinion, in really wonderful ways applied to modern secular life. Um, but it is Buddhist. It's a, it's a Buddhist teaching. Comes, comes from Buddhism, from the Buddha. I probably am going to repeat, you know, some of what I was just saying in this chapter. So let's see what the chapter says and then let's have some discussion about it. We develop the capacity to focus the mind on a single object, such as the breath or a phrase. Training the mind through the practices of loving kindness, compassion, and forgiveness to focus on the positive qualities we seek to uncover. And we utilize concentration at times of temptation or craving in order to abstain from acting unwisely. Concentration or focused attention 
is another necessary tool on the path to recovery and freedom. When the mind is fully concentrated on one object, for example, on a mantra, a phrase, or a specific aspect of the breath or body, you will often have a very pleasant, blissed out experience. This is because when your mind is fully concentrated, you are no longer aware of the hindrances of sleepiness, restlessness, craving, doubt, and aversion. This can be a very useful experience in early recovery when the cravings are still very strong. Concentration is developed by giving preference to a single object, such as the breath, a phrase, a mantra, or any of the previous foundations of mindfulness. As we continually bring our attention back to the chosen object, the mind becomes more focused and able to see more clearly the nature of the chosen experience. Our practice of mindfulness of breath is a concentration practice. Also, when we practice forgiveness, loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and appreciation meditations, we repeat phrases over and over in our minds, and this too concentrates the mind. These practices are also creating new thought patterns or new neural, new neural pathways. We honor and utilize concentration practices as an aspect of our path to recovery, but we also must issue a warning of caution. When the concentration wears off, the mind is still subject to those same difficult experiences. Thus, the so-called spiritual experience of concentration meditations is really just the temporary phenomena of bliss or nothingness. A temporary state of concentration can't change your relationship to the mind. It can't set you free from the confusion and difficulty in life. It only allows you to avoid it or ignore it temporarily. Although the Buddha ultimately rejected concentration as the sole path to freedom, he realized that concentration was a useful tool when integrated with mindfulness to bring about insight and wisdom. Concentration is best used to see the impermanent, impersonal, and unsatisfactory nature of all phenomena. These three insights, impermanence, impersonality, and unsatisfactoriness, are the keys to our recovery. Those who accept the world for how it is, rather than constantly wishing for something else, are on the path to freedom from addiction. In times of craving and temptation, many have found it useful to replace the thoughts of acting out with a mantra-like recitation of one of the heart practices, saying over and over, may I be at ease, or may I be free from suffering. This is a skillful way to redirect our attention and distract us from the craving that has arisen. The level of concentration needed to fully benefit from the mindfulness, insight, meditation practices is thought to be in the area of being able to sustain, to sustain focus on the chosen object, the breath or phrase 
for about 10 minutes without getting lost in thought. Most people will be able to attain this level of concentration within a few months if they practice daily and diligently. Concentration is one of our precious and useful tools on the path to recovery. If used wisely, it will profoundly help our process of awakening. If misused or abused, it could postpone our liberation indefinitely. Be wary of teachers and traditions that are only offering concentration-based practices. Mindfulness is the true cause of liberating insights. Concentration supports mindfulness. So you can reflect on your own meditation practice and how much of the time are you choosing to bring your attention back and focus just on one uh, aspect of the mindfulness practice or always coming back to a phrase. As most of you are aware, we encourage people in refuge recovery to alternate mindfulness and concentration practices so that you're bringing uh, a both. Um, we say from the beginning, do mindfulness and forgiveness, and forgiveness is an emotional intelligence developing concentration-based practice where we learn to forgive ourselves, we learn to ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness to the people that uh, we resent that have harmed us in some way. So with all of these practices, uh, ultimately we have to be responsible to ourselves for finding the balance between how much concentration to develop and how much to bring that open, accepting, non-judgmental, inclusive awareness so that we can truly see impermanence, the impersonal nature of the human mind on all of the judgments and fears and cravings and aversions and ego trips that the human mind does. It's not your fault. And ultimately, the more we wake up to that, the more we see the unsatisfactory nature, the impersonal, and we stop taking it all so personal. We stop suffering so much, really, which is truly the, the goal of our recovery is not just how do we maintain abstinence. So of course, that's the foundation. But how do we really get free? How do we live a life uh, where are uh, able to integrate the joys and sorrows, the pleasures and pains? without just ignoring them and concentrating them away, but developing compassion by turning towards, learning to feel, learning to be uncomfortable, learning to enjoy the pleasure even when it's impermanent, arising and passing. Some of my thoughts about uh, where we're at in this series and concentration, and I'd like to open to some dialogue, any questions, comments, clarifications, if you would like to um, engage with me, I'm happy to engage with you and to, to talk. And you can do so by raising your hand in the um, window, there's some dots and it'll, uh, or in the chat box, it'll allow you to raise your hand and participate in that way. And I'll call on you and we can dialogue a bit. 
or if you would like to uh, send a, a message in the chat box, you can do that. So you can use your voice or you can send a message up to you. Is what I'm saying about concentration make sense to you? Is it clear? And or do you have any questions about this for your own recovery? Kobe, go for it. You're on mute. Yeah, you're good. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Noah. Uh, so I've heard you, you know, kind of refer to, to the difference between concentration and mindfulness in this way a couple of times. And it really stresses me out <laughs> because right now, uh, there's a whole lot of noise going on in there. And so for me to just be able to sit, sit quietly and, 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 you know, just sit still kind of is, is a, a task enough for me. Um, so, you know, I, it doesn't really stress me out that much, but, you know, I, I, I wonder about like, am I sort of not doing what I need to be doing if I'm, if at this point I'm just working on sitting and listening to my breath and sort of at, so what you read in the book about like, I should be able to sit for about 10 minutes without getting lost in thought. So is that kind of, I can have that as my goal before I start worrying about the difference between mindfulness and concentration? Yes, um, it's, a, it's a good goal. I have you know, mixed feelings about putting it in there um, because some people feel like they never get to the place where they can get 10 minutes without being uh, and, and again, that this doesn't mean that thoughts don't arise. I think that this is one of the confusion that people bring is that they think I should be able to sit here with no thoughts. Um, and you have to get very concentrated for no thoughts, but you don't have to get very concentrated to be able to mostly stay with the breath and the body and thoughts are kind of in the background. And even if you do engage with it a little bit, you really quickly are able to disengage and you're not lost in some fantasy or memory or plan for a long time. You need to see their thoughts arising and passing. Um, my sense is you're a little bit new, right? And you're, what you're saying is that, yes, don't, don't stress about it. And that for now, actually your practice will probably be mostly concentration-based and that's totally okay. Um, I, I, would, I think that for my probably almost two years of my meditation practice, I mostly concentrated on my breath and did some of the loving kindness and those phrases, but it took a while before I felt settled enough or really understood well enough about the second foundation and third foundation and you know, actually watching the mind. So in the beginning, breath and forgiveness phrases, breath and forgiveness phrases are perfect. And so don't worry too much. You'll, the more you do that, the more you'll build the stability and then you'll in, start to investigate more. The reason I'm critical um, and push this is that you all of the time I meet and you hear about people who are five years in, 10 years in, 20 years in, and they're still just watching the breath and ignoring their mind. 
and it's just a losing strategy in the long run. If you really want to be free, you have to stop ignoring your mind and start just being with the chaos of the thinking mind with compassion and, and learn to see that it's not that personal. In the beginning, breath, forgiveness, loving kindness, compassion, perfect. Thank you. Welcome. Robin. Hey, no, it's great to be here. Hi, everybody. I'm Robin. Um, this is the first time I've been here. I just found out about this. So um, I've been working with um, refuge recovery for a little bit, and then I kind of left it for a little bit. And now I'm working back with it. Um, but I didn't know y'all were here. So I'm grateful to find you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I really like that chapter. And um, I never really put that much thought into it, the difference between the concentration and the mindfulness. Um, and now that you mentioned it, it is a lot, it is a lot of concentration practice for me. And I, um, I get lost a lot in thought um, and I catch it every now and then I realize, oh, thinking, psh, reel it in, thinking, psh, reel it in. Um, and I think I get glimpses of mindfulness and it was kind of stressing me out too, as a last person, it kind of stresses me out too, trying to think about how much do I actually spend in mindfulness, such as mindfulness of walking, mindfulness of breathing, you know, mindfulness of um, washing the dishes, taking a shower, what have you. Um, and I feel like I get glimpses of it and is, is the, the goal is to understand just because I'm understanding it more as a feeling tone of watching the mind and a feeling tone of what's going on. So it's more of a feeling tone, I think for me. And um, I'm just trying to, and I know it's not really a good idea to try to wrap your mind around mindfulness. You know, it's just probably wig you out a little bit. Um, so um, I, I think you answered a lot of my question, but I, I'm guessing just being able to be the watcher of the mind, which I understand that, which I understand that. And I, I do struggle with that. I do struggle with watching the mind and just letting it do its thing without having to pull it back and concentrate on something else. Yeah. So I guess it's like you, you answered my question with just those practices to start with and stick with for right now, and then start to pay attention see if I can go down that road. Absolutely. And yeah. And the important part is, um, and this is where the kind of the warning is that concentration feels better. Yeah. And so Easy. we want to, you know, we, we tend to want to bring our attention back to the chosen object right. um, and really opening to mindfulness where you feel a little bit more destabilized and, mm -hmm. and less um, avoidance of what's causing us suffering and actually turning towards that judging thought or that insecurity or that pain in your knee when you're meditating yeah. is so important to do that. And I, again, this is one of the reasons why the Buddha said this path is against the stream, is counter to our instincts because our instincts are avoid. Yeah. And then we can start to use even our meditation practice to avoid. Yeah. In the I beginning, avoidance is skillful. In the long run, not so skillful. I get that now. Thank you. I didn't understand that. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Welcome. Glad to welcome back. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Glad to find y'all. Kimberly sent me.
William. Hello, it's nice to meet you um, all. And um, I just, uh, I'm pretty new um, to refuge recovery uh, just within the last uh, 30 days. And um, I'm really, uh, really enjoying it. And uh, I was excited to hear about uh, this opportunity. I um, missed out on a, a lot of what has already occurred, but um, there's always time to catch up. Um, this has really been uh, an eye-opener for me. Um, I mean, I've meditated on and off for a long time, mostly off, <laughs> sometimes on. Um, and it was always about a breathing meditation. Um, and I thought, I knew that there were some other forms of meditation where there was a phrase to dwell on and, and such. I, I didn't think of those, uh, I thought of those as different from breathing meditation, but actually, as you just have described, it's another form of concentration meditation. And it just, I'd never identified it that way. So it's really enlightening to, to, to hear that distinction being made. And, you know, and I get it that concentration meditation is in fact avoidance um, in, in a sense, be, be, because everything else is shut out um, while you're, if you're properly concentrating. And I always thought it was about concentrating on the breath and reaching that point of perfect stillness and, and you know, a lake that's totally clear and clean and no ripples on it. And I try to get my mind there. Um, not really realizing that that was only one half of what it is that you really want to be doing. And, and, and knowing that the reason that we become uh, addicted is, is due to underlying circumstances that, that uh, as the book early on says, you're, you're never, if you just abstain and you don't deal with the underlying conditions, you're not really recovering. And, and that mindfulness doorway seems like it's the place to go to start to interact with the other components that are leading you to where you've been. So it's just, it's a really, um, it's a really um, eye-opening uh, distinction and, and um, something new in my brain today. So um, thank you. Wonderful. Thanks, William, and welcome to Refuge. Glad you're joining us. And uh, yeah, my, my sense is that you're, you're getting it. And, um, you know, just, just to make a little comment about, I think it's so common that almost, it's like the most common thing that people come to meditation with is this idea of creating stillness. Um, and it doesn't seem to be what the Buddha was actually teaching. He, you know, it's uh, non-reactivity is really the goal, not stillness. And having an ability to uh, have a like a non non-reactive relationship to the chaos of the human heart and mind <laughs> in the midst of difficulties, uh, to not cling, to not hate, to not judge, to, you know, is much more practical for our life, for our recovery than thinking I need to be 
still quiet, you know, pond. <laughs> um, my teacher's teacher, Ajahn Chah, has this saying that's very common where he says, uh, maybe our practice can be as simple as letting go. He said, if you let go a little bit, if you, you'll have a little bit of happiness. If you let go uh, a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. If you let go absolutely, you'll know the happiness of the Buddha, the freedom of the Buddha. So, but he said, and your mind will become quiet and still like a forest pool. But then he uses this image, and this is the important image. He says, and all kinds of strange and wonderful animals will come to drink from that still pool. So I feel like what he's saying here is like, yes, if you get really concentrated and you let go of clinging and aversion, you'll have an inter kind of calmness, stillness. But strange and wonderful animals are your thoughts and your emotions and, uh, you know, sensations that will continue to come, but that there's an inner ease and non-reactivity. We're not trying to cling to the thoughts or the sensations or the emotions. And that this is really the, the, the liberation that's possible. Uh, it's not an absence of thought. It's a ease and, and stillness in the midst of thought. So I hope that's, that's helpful. That's, that's the way I, I understand it. Thank you, William. Um, Julie, please. Hi, Noah. Thanks. Good to be here. Nice to see everybody. And um, so what, I, here's my thing. Uh, when I'm practicing concentration, um, which I've gotten really comfortable with concentration breath, just focus on the breath. But when I start to bring in things like forgiveness specifically, I get, um, and certain experiences, certain people, it's like my mind is like, oh no, let's go look at this for a little while. And I still get really caught up and seduced in those thoughts. And so um, that's my thing. Um, and it's everybody's thing. That's common. That happens to all of us. And that's part of the process. Uh, when you give your mind a task that it does not want to do, <laughs> like forgive, where it feels vulnerable, it feels threatened, it feels, uh, of course, the mind is like, no, no, fuck this, let's think about some other shit, or let's get into like, um, why they don't deserve forgiveness, or why I don't deserve forgiveness, or it's so easy to get lost in that. And this is where you just return to the phrase. And the mind, you know, and you say, I forgive you. And then the mind goes, no, don't forgive. Or you think about something else. And then you come back and you say, I forgive you. And then the mind does its dance and you come back and you say, I forgive you. <laughs> and you just keep, and that's the concentration of you keep returning to that thought, no matter what the mind does, whether the mind says, yes, finally, she's forgiving. <laughs> Or the mind says, no fucking way. That's not safe. You just keep doing the practice. And that's, that's why it's a concentration is because you're returning to the phrase over and over. Um, you know, there's a bit of a hybrid that's happening too in a lot of the meditations. And I think in a lot of the ways that I teach where there's, um, you know, if you say the phrase and then you bring mindfulness to what happens, then you're doing a bit of mindfulness and constant, you know, you're kind of, you're like placing this thought in your mind and then you're breathing with it. 
and you're feeling the second foundation as is pleasant or unpleasant and what is my mind doing third foundation so there's a hybrid that's happening where we are doing the phrases of concentration but we're also bringing a mindful investigation to the effects of that so yes it's hard i mean right part of your question or your comment is just like this is hard my mind's not good at just staying on point with the uh, emotional intelligence or the, the forgiveness or the compassion or the uh, it's not good at it nobody's mind is you, you know this um and we, it's in the book about the buddha saying uh the untrained mind is like a monkey uh, and this monkey that's swinging to the future and swinging to the past and attacking sometimes sometimes it's angry monkey sometimes it's playful monkey sometimes it's horny monkey whatever it is it's you know it's just the, that's just what the mind is like and so we keep bringing that back here and then we investigate open here open here open And let's see, you know, I know you're um, some years in, I'd imagine that it's getting a bit better than it used to be. Uh, sometimes we feel like I know in my own practice, I felt like there's setbacks of like, I think I used to be better at meditating than I am now. <laughs> you know, sometimes we have those like pink cloud experiences in meditation in the beginning where you have those big experiences and then trying to get back to them. They're more craving for that blissful meditation I had in 97. Um, but we just keep practicing. I mean, often it's just about perseverance and, and seeing how's it changing over the months and years of our practice. Good to see you. Thank you. James McDougall. Hello, Noah. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and thank you very much for putting this uh, sangha on tonight. And just a question of mine. Um, I had 16 years of sobriety before March of this year. And um, included in that sobriety, I did have a meditation practice. Um, but when I did decide to pick up again, and alcohol was my, uh, my choice of aversion, um, it went on for long enough that uh, I had to go away. I figured it was the best thing for me to go into a rehab center. And on the first day of my rehab, um, at the rehab center, they handed me a refuge recovery, as a matter of fact, which was the best, best gift they could have given me because I had a nice long month to study the book and underline and highlight. Um, just what I'm alluding to pretty much is um, the word powerlessness. Uh, while I was at the center, um, I took part in quite a few yoga nidra classes. And there was a mantra that was in one of the yoga nidra classes that said, in my powerless, I accept who I am and my life as it is. And it really resonated with me. And now as I'm studying um, the, uh, the noble truths and the eightfold path, and I'm wondering just where maybe um, does powerlessness fit? within wisdom and ethics and concentration? And would the word powerlessness, um, would that go back as far as the Buddha and his teachings? Um, well, I have some thoughts, but I also have some questions for you. First a comment, then a question, then I'll answer your question. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
my comment is if it works keep doing it whether it fits with buddhism or not you know what i mean by that like if you're doing yes. something and you feel like you're benefiting from it trust that whether it fits with you know what refuge is saying or what buddhism is saying like so trust your direct experience that's my comment my question is what does powerlessness mean to you um mostly to me powerlessness is when i actually um imbibe when i'm actually in the act of of aversion imbibing uh and the opposite of renunciation i'm fully invested in what i'm doing and um avoiding suffering does it okay um does it mean that human beings do not have free will that we are powerless to make decisions no it just means that so to you it means that once you have taken a drink you lose the ability to stop to choose hmm <laughs> i know i know the choice is there and um for the most part i'll choose not to stop mm -hmm. um i mean the reason i want to do some of this kind of exploration clarifying is um you know my own direct experience and also being a member of 12 step and uh, and ongoing i i did not stop going most of you are probably aware i even though i created refuge recovery i continue to participate in in the 12-step programs um for many reasons partially just out of habit but i also like it mm. um so your question about does it is it fit with buddhism on some levels it doesn't really and i can't think of anywhere in early buddhist teachings um well here, here how about this i'm just think i'm thinking about this on the fly the first noble truth is that we all experience suffering and that on some level or another like because we don't it's not that we don't have the ability to end suffering right that's the third noble truth but first, the Buddha starts with this acknowledgement that we all experience suffering on, on some levels because the natural, untrained tendency of the human heart and mind is to cling and to crave and to obey the mind. Without meditation, and that's why I asked that question about free will. Because I feel like on some level, what the Buddha is saying is that without meditation, we don't have a lot of free will, right? Because mm. we wouldn't actually choose to suffer the way that we do or to become alcoholics or like we wouldn't choose that. Nobody is going to sign up for that, <laughs> <laughs> right? But we mm. all have experienced that because we didn't have a, the skills, we didn't have the training to not obey our mind when it says drink when it says use when it says 
lie, steal, cheat, whatever bad advice the mind is giving us. With mindfulness, with a, you know, when we start meditating, when we, then we have that um, pause, that ability. If we sustain a mindfulness, a practice, and this is again, you know, on this topic where mindfulness is so important, so that you know what's happening in your mind, and you're not really just, just really good at ignoring your mind. So when that thought comes up that says, "You should relapse," <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, which happens for all of us at some point or another. When we have enough mindfulness, then we're able to say, oh, wow, that's a really scary thought and and a really bad advice that my mind is giving me. And with the insights that mindfulness lead to, we have that free will to say, I'm not going to obey that. I'm not going to, uh, we're not powerless over that thought. Now, I would say on some level, here's what I, you know, where I can land with, we're a little, we're a bit powerless over what arises. Does that make sense? We're a bit powerless over what thoughts come into your mind or what emotions we experience. We're a bit, we we can't control our mind and our heart. (laughs) You know, like your mind's gonna do what it's gonna do. Your emotions, you're like, it's gonna do, we're we're not in control of that. With a trained heart and mind, we develop the ability to choose how we respond to what arises. And in that way, then this is really the Buddha's teaching where you human beings have the ability to train their minds to the point, their heart to the point, our practice renunciation to where we no longer choose destructive behaviors like drinking and using. We can't stop the mind from having those thoughts. We can stop obeying them in the long run. Yes. And I want to come back to my first comment, which is like, if, if that sat, you know, if powerlessness, that Nidra practice that you're doing feels good and about acceptance and about accepting ourselves just the way we are, that's beautiful. You go with that. Mm. There's, I think, a lot of people in refuge and using the Buddhist approach that have a, a big aversion to powerlessness. That you know, it's because at its worst, it's a perspective that says human beings are puppets and only God can control everything in your life. Yes. <laughs> and you know, you can't stay sober. Only God can keep you sober. You know, the kind of worst mm-hmm. interpretation of that. So a lot of us are like, well, that sounds like bullshit. <laughs> So powerlessness must not be true, but powerlessness in the form of acceptance. Um, one, one more thought. There's this piece of what I'm mostly talking about, which is our own relationship to our own mind and heart. And then there's our relationship to each other and to the world. So there's the equanimity meditation practice, which also we do as a concentration, repeating over and over. All beings have their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their own actions, not my wishes for them. Sounds a little bit like I am powerless over others. I can't control 
others, <laughs> right? So in that way, if there's a place of powerlessness, I can't make anybody happy. I can't make anybody be compassionate or forgiving or stop being a racist idiot. I can't make people do that. But I can look at my own racism. I can look at my own biases. I can look at my own mind and heart. And I have a lot of influence over myself. And of course we have some influence over each other. And it's one of the importances of the taking refuge in the Sangha of you know, how we relate to each other. We have some influence, we can support, we can encourage, and sometimes we can confront each other, but we can't control each other. So internal and external thought my, you know, and I, I probably have a lot more thoughts, but those are my initial thoughts about some of the ways to reflect on, on powerlessness from what we're doing. Thank you very much. Welcome. I hope it's helpful and welcome back. And, um, you know, as we say, it's just, just today, you know, we, sure. I, I'm, I'm glad you're back. And I, I know this is a little bit of a, different topic, but I was very conscious about not doing a big thing about time and refuge so that there wasn't the um, relapse shaming. And that we really, we all are sober today in recovery mm. today, rather than all of the stuff. I mean, refuge has now been around for six years and people are celebrating time. And, but if you look in the book, there's no mention of celebrating time. No. <laughs> or introducing yourself as a new person or any of that, uh, or even identifying as, you know, as an addict. Um, because I, you know, relapse is often part of people's story and experience. And I always just wanted this to be a place where they didn't feel like that, that extra level of relapse shame. So, for that, I'm grateful. Yes. Yeah, I just want to welcome you for, welcome you back and, and uh, glad you're with us. Thank you. And it's a pleasure meeting you. You too. I think we're out of time. Um, next week, coming previews. Everybody's favorite chapter of Refuge Recovery, chapter 13, lucky 13, the path to heartfulness. As we walk the path to Refuge Recovery, we gradually uncover a loving heart. So tune in next week, join me for the discussion of uncovering this loving heart that's always been here. We just haven't had that much access to part of the concentration, part of the mindfulness, all of the renunciation and practice that we do uh, to open our, our hearts to become more loving, more kind, more compassionate. And um, Refuge Recovery is self-supporting. I do this um, out of my own generosity. Any donations that come in go to support the organization, Refuge Recovery World Services. I don't receive any uh, money for, for anything that I do in Refuge at this time. So um, please be generous if you can. We have a, an organization to support. Please give some donations. The link is in the chat. We'll leave it up for a few minutes or go to refugerecovery.org, make a donation if you feel moved to, if you care to, please support us in that way. And um, 
I think that's it. Glad to see everybody. Welcome to the new folks and the old folks. And uh, next week, Thursday, 5 p.m. Pacific time. Hope to see you here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Refuge Recovery Podcast. To learn more about our program of recovery and to connect with others on the Refuge Recovery Path, visit our website, refugerecovery.org, where you will find information, meditations, and links to both in-person and online Refuge Recovery meetings. This podcast is brought to you by Refuge Recovery World Services, a nonprofit created to support our network of Refuge Recovery groups around the world. Thank you for listening.